talk about revolution That's going a little bit too far So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal Hello, and welcome once again to More Like the Worst Wing, the podcast where we take apart Aaron Sorkin's seminal television classic, The West Wing, from a little bit more leftist socialist perspective here in 2019. I am Stu. And I am Dave. And today, our episode is Manchester Part 2, which is technically the third episode of the third season of the show, but because Isaac and Ishmael we do not speak of, right. we can just call it the second episode. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll abandon this gimmick quite quickly and just talk <laughs> about them as normal episodes. But yes, this is uh, a direct continuation, uh, straight from part one, where we are still dealing with the uh, overall plot of the Bartlett campaign launch is really sort of the main focus uh, of this episode in part two in particular. I'd like to note, before we even get into a quick plot wrap-up, that this fucking episode uses the flashback mechanic that I railed against in the last one again, mm -hmm. and even less delip like um, the telegraphing of it is even subtler. And then it like kind but, of forgets about it like halfway through. <laughs> totally, I, it 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 deals with things that are happening at two disparate times. And somehow at the end of it, we just abandoned the first one, and now it's like present day. Mm. Yeah. So what what happens in this episode is we continue sort of down the road of we need to assemble a team to launch the president's reelection campaign in style and in a way that will mitigate the fallout of the MS diagnosis. So it's established quite early that this is episode really fleshes out the story of how Bruno Gianelli and his team came to be involved with the administration yes. and the work that they've been doing with the staff to do the campaign launch. Yes, your favorite characters, Doug and Connie, who have been totally there <laughs> the whole time off screen. Uh, mm -hmm. Yes, uh, so it's really, it is the story of them. And really the dynamic between them and our current staff is kind of the main conflict of this episode, in addition to all the stuff that happens between the president and his wife. Um, and CJ a little too is sort of the other source of conflict um, in this episode. And it's mostly all internal conflict. They're not really dealing with like an adversary or an enemy or what have you other than just sort of the campaign itself as a general obstacle that needs to be overcome, you know, a goal that needs to be won, if you will. Yeah, so the the understood to be in the past time period all takes place in the actual White House. Correct. And the understood to be contemporary period all takes place. What we would be led to believe is on location in Manchester, New Hampshire, what, Joe Biden's what, favorite town. Yeah, Joe Biden would, would call it. Uh, what do you think? In Vermont. What do you think about being here in, uh, in Keene, New Hampshire? I think Vermont's yeah. a lovely state. <laughs> So, and it's actually, uh, I googled the trivia bit, it was actually filmed in a little place called Bluemont, Virginia, so not even anywhere close. Yeah, it doesn't look, it kind of, you know, like, I haven't been in New Hampshire, but it doesn't look very New Hampshire. It's too flat, for one thing. I picture New <laughs> Hampshire being less flat overall. Uh, and then I think I recall in season six or seven, they actually do shoot on location in New Hampshire for that campaign. Uh, and that New Hampshire looks a lot more New Hampshire-y, for lack of a better word. Well, it would also explain how the president conveniently 
like owns a sprawling <laughs> like dude ranch. non-functional dude ranch. <laughs> yeah. You know, there are probably a lot more of those in Virginia uh, than there uh, are as, in New Hampshire. As the title helpfully tells us, it's the Bartlett Family Farm. Uh, I, yeah. did, I did not realize he came from a family of farmers. I thought he came from a family of, family of legislators. Economists. And economists. Uh, yeah. and, <laughs> you know, and, and boarding school runners. <laughs> yeah. So we get uh, a couple shots on location where there's some conflict between the speech writing staff. I do like the shots on location, for the record. Hey, you it's, know, it's, it's always a, it's nice. Break. It's always nice to get out of the White House on this show. That's always my view. Yeah, and um, so as the staff sort of fights back and forth about the speech, we get a couple of flashback uh, segments to Bruno being introduced to the White House and Leo yes. really taking the reins in the crisis management um, sort of thing in his role as chief of staff. He starts to sort of bulldoze through. Sam and especially CJ in this episode where it's mm-hmm. just like, you might not like this, but I'm the fucking boss. Yeah, we're so doing we're doing it my way. We're doing it. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I there there's a minor subplot of the fucking Haiti coup, and I wrote that haha, Leo is doing his own coup in the White House. Lol. Kind of. Yeah. Uh the yeah the Haiti thing gets wrapped up so neatly and quickly that it might as well like have never happened. I do find it funny they actually mention Venezuela in re- in regards to Haiti, um, <laughs> because this whole thing reeks of Venezuela. Uh, there's at one point where one of the generals says, "Do we want to set a precedent that anyone can just start a coup and walk away if it doesn't work?" Uh, I guess Juan Guaido certainly likes that precedent <laughs> being in place. Shazam! Speaking of Venezuela, yeah, and so basically. Like- like the solution, we'll touch on this real briefly. The solution to the Haiti coup is, well, we're gonna give the coup doer a way to just get the fuck out of town. Yes, and asylum here, and asylum now is family. We're good. Uh, I assume he is going somewhere else. Uh, he just wants I don't his, know. Fa- his family in America. I think maybe it's him too. Um, but yeah, this is this is something. I've heard it pitched as a desperate, like, quote-unquote solution to actual Venezuela, which is, like, just give Maduro a plane ticket and X million dollars and tell him to fuck off and that he won't be prosecuted and and somehow this will, you know, fix everything. You know, somehow. Uh, but uh, at least it's not an invasion plan, so I, I guess it has that going for it. Anywho, that basically wraps up Haiti uh, with a ni- nice little bow. Uh, we don't have to worry about you know, who ends up leading Haiti or whatever, because the show sure as shit is not going to tell us. Well, and I would like to note that for there's an exchange between the president and Leo in the fucking Oval Office where he makes a joke about the French serving as mediators and mentions that they like to surrender. Uh, Holy fucking shit. Uh, this, uh, is, this, is, uh, <laughs> this is pre-Iraq war, too, so... Uh, this was, you know, this is filmed in that nice little window post nine eleven pre Iraq war, uh, where oh man, anywho, <laughs> yeah. Let's... So we we get some more we get some more conflict between Bruno. He Bruno comes in basically, which rules. He yes. he like yes. <laughs> he he comes to a meeting that apparently um, he hadn't set up, and Leo had set up without telling Margaret, which throws Margaret's system all off. <laughs> oh, it completely fucks it up, but. He comes in, like, sits down with Leo and goes, like, of course you called me. 
here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna pay me this much money. Yeah. I'm gonna have these things. Yeah, he's, and he's the cleaner then, from, from yeah. fucking Reservoir Dogs. He's the wolf. Yeah, exactly. Like, like that, that's absolutely the energy he's channeling in this scene. And Ron mm-hmm. Silver, the actor, pulls it off so well. He's one of these guys who's like. You've never seen him before this, or maybe you have. I'm sure he's done, you know, work before. I had never seen him in anything before West Wing. And he just comes across as, like, this effortlessly cool Han Solo motherfucker. Who's just like, you're like, I want to be him. <laughs> yeah. He's, the, um... It's, it's very well done. It's a great performance. So... Rest in peace, Ron Silver. First of all, oh no. The only the only thing I remember Ron Silver being in was he was in Time Cop, which is that terrible <laughs> Van Damme movie. <laughs> Stands out in my memory. Was he the bad guy, or did he help? Uh, Van Damme? Fuck, he was like. Um, I could see him being a bad guy in like an eighties action movie. He's got like. I'm reasonably certain he was the bad guy because he wore a suit, yeah, right? Exactly. And that was the universal indicator of, like... he's got that like, energy. Yeah, like yeah. that. <laughs> but anywho, yeah, I, I love the way he comes in. He's like, uh, alright, and then of course, so we get to the actual grift of how Ron, Ron ma- makes his money, which is a percent of the ad buy, uh, which is, of course, why all these campaigns waste so much goddamn money on fucking ad buys <laughs> because their campaign advisor gets a percentage of the ad buy and keeps telling them, yes, you should buy more ads to increase my salary. God, it's a great fucking... What like, a grift! It's, <laughs> like, it's awesome work if you can get it, man. Like, power to you. Yeah. Uh, and then, Holy so shit. he wants X percent of the ad buy. They have, kind of have a funny squibble over that. He wants unfettered access to the president, which they claim is a deal breaker, and I don't get why. Is it just the logistics of actually you can't just have access to him because he might be busy, or is it like a power trip thing? I don't get it's it. Prob- the way I read it and the way they play it is that it is a, it's a, like, um, the understanding of the administration is that this guy is a fucking shark and we are bringing him in to shark but we're not for tr- us but we're not trusting but, him exactly we're not vesting we're in not, him the he's level not coming trust. into the inner circle i get exactly. it okay okay that yeah. when you explain it like that that makes it all click together it's it's also funny because i really like Margaret has a very, very minor role in this episode, but everything she does just <laughs> fucking rules. Yeah. And she like, I, I don't know. And it's just, it's always played up as the things with Margaret and Donna. And this was just something that sprung to mind while I was watching. It's like their character traits, like, um, deliberateness and, um, what's the word I'm looking, I'm looking for fastidiousness, attention, attention to detail, attention to detail, yes. like devotion. They're all signaled to the audience in a negative way. And that's like like that they're like overly the like. they're overly yeah. all of these things yeah yeah <laughs> to to a point where it makes them you know weird or wacky or what have you but yeah you're right those yeah, are their it's most just very chauvinistic. those are their most like charming earnest like uh, admirable qualities like yeah yeah they're, they're in um, intense loyalty and and attention to detail and fastidiousness and like you said yeah. So, and anyway, so like, yeah, I just, it's very chauvinistic. Um, Uh, I do want to point out that in the canon of West Wing, Bruno and Margaret hook up uh, and maybe even have a kid together. Like, like, no, it it doesn't happen on screen, but this is something both of the actors have like talked about and said, like, (laughs) we, we just kind of worked out that like they were secretly flirting the whole time and like (laughs) they totally banged and had a kid (laughs) off off screen. (laughs) 
<laughs> I just this, I, li- this I like perfect. when characters do that. Like they're both like I mean Bruno's not a background character. Margaret Moore is, but like I love when people who are basically background characters invent like crazy backstories or cool info for their for their fictional characters. Oh my god. Because because well we we'll see right now it kind of does do a mini arc of like uh, on the in the part one episode Bruno and her had the thing on the plane where he's like hey you you red oh, you're right. red haired hey, you redhead girl and and yeah. she's like I'm Margaret and he's like yeah whatever I don't care and then towards the end of this I think it's I don't know if it takes till the final season but at some point Bruno will present Margaret with a gold necklace that says Margaret. Uh, and like, and she, which of course she has a big smiling reaction to, and is the implication that perhaps the child is conceived that night. <laughs> <laughs> I would, I would like to say that big gold necklace that says your name is very 2019. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. It's timeless. <laughs> yeah. It's great. Um, so anyway, we, we get Bruno blown into the West Wing and blowing yes. stuff up. Like he actually gets to sit down with the president, like negotiate their terms. And then from there on out it's basically understood that it's like okay we've established that these people are coming in to help the admin out let's go forward to the campaign launch to see what they are like producing right in that regard so we get a couple shots of them running around trying to wrangle shit around like on the farm and in this place (laughs) like in manchester like a fairground that they're trying to have this event at and i'm not gonna talk about it at length but everybody dressing casually sucks ass oh my god doug is, is wearing doug is wearing the most 90s shirt when he fucking talks with toby in the kitchen like it's a, it's like a alton brown early good eat shirt where it's just like I would... it's draping off him he's not a big guy but he's wearing like a fucking xxl shirt or something it's like it's like a fucking moomoo <laughs> I was going the to. The fashion is insane. <laughs> Just. I was going to describe his aesthetic as like Cipher from the Matrix meets Guy Fieri, <laughs> but at a at a bowling alley. <laughs> uh, like, yeah, like Joe Joe Pantoliano, like Go, wearing a giant. Bowling. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, like it is, and Allison Janney is wearing the worst jeans oh, and like a oh. honey. honey. And then like the thing, the the reason I bring this up is that. Both um, Leo and Bartlett are greatly aged mm-hmm. by the clothing that they wear. They are like, wearing Bartlett super is... fucking old man casual wear. Like yeah, this is and, and Leo Leo's wearing like what you wear when you go down to the fucking yacht club. You know, <laughs> like yeah, he's got khakis and a blazer, which and a blazer, is like exactly. and and so. <sighs> It is, it's very, it's, it's dissonant because they make a very big deal out of it being like, this is when we need to be fresh. We need to be on our game. We're going to launch the fuck out of this campaign. And then it's like, cool. We're going to appear in not quite public, but dress like this shit. Like you'd look tired. Yeah. You look like yesterday's garbage. <laughs> <laughs> so we get, we get that a couple scenes of that. And then, you know, the, the culmination of the episode is that. There are two interactions, one between um, Doug and Toby mm-hmm. and one between Connie Brighton, whose actual name in the show I never remember. Sure. Um, Connie. and Also Connie. Holy shit. Okay. That's right. So, Doug and Connie. Also, also yeah. Connie. Bruno Connie interacts with Connie. Sam. Yeah. Interacts with Sam. And then, and then also actually, CJ and the president. Yeah, yes. I was going to say, there's a third yeah. one where you get CJ and the president all sort of reconciling these awful awful negative vibes that they've been feeling and saying look we understand that you're all mad at each other 
and particularly mad at the president for doing these things. And, like, CJ calls him the fuck out. Yeah. Um, which is awesome. Actually, I'd like to put the clip in here. Well, to leave earlier would have been strategically. Yeah, okay. Look, the press is... That's nonsense to me, and I don't care. Well, you might For not care. For all the new jobs we've created, there are single mothers working two of them at minimum wage. There are school districts where less than half the students graduate. And a kid born in Harlem is more likely to go to prison than a four-year college. They're bringing guns to school. Don't you dare that. lecture me, Mr. President. Don't you dare do it. And, like, this is the mouthiest anybody has ever... Like, not even yes. Abby is this mouthy. Yes. the president. <laughs> So this all wraps up with the, the Gianelli crew serving a function that is sort of an archetype in, in TV and movies where it's like these are the sort of like the sage wisdom outsider um, perspective yes. that is breaking through the main character's, um, you know, blinkered perspective on what's yes. going on. Yeah, these are the people who have a fresh outside perspective on things, who haven't been wrapped up in all this bullshit for the whole time, uh, who can offer some sort of clarity for our characters to kind of get them back on track, which is really this whole episode is about every getting everyone back on track, which is why it feels like nothing really happens. Well, yeah, and then so you actually get this really nice... Uh, and I include that clip for a reason because it is actually quite good. Yeah, and like the that would have been is a, there. a great moment to end the episode on. But exactly. instead, <laughs> we, it just kind of peters out for like the last couple, three minutes. When we go on and it's like the president shows up in this one room schoolhouse right before he's going to give his speech and gives this shitty fucking pep talk to his staff. It's like, well, he, and he literally opens by saying Churchill and FDR used to say, it's just like, uh, uh, what the fuck? Webster's <laughs> dictionary defines winning exactly, a re-election yeah. as <laughs> yes, exactly. And you know, there there's a brief thing where they're making fun of each other and him for using two large words in yeah. his speech. Or, like, oh, or for, yeah, for God's sake. And well, like, look, this this is sort of setting up the arc of of heading to the debate between him and the obvious W stand-in. Of uh, can he go smart or not, or will it mm. alienate? Uh, will it play in Peoria if he if he uses two big words, uh, which is sort of like the defining, I guess, conflict of his re-election campaign, which is fucking insane. Of course, especially because he just he spent won already the... doing speeches with big words the first time around, <laughs> and he just spent this what should have been a fade-to-black moment of his confrontation with CJ talking about the things that he's pissed off about. Right. And that he would ostensibly... Campaign on. <laughs> every every ability to both campaign on and then take action against. Correct. In but instead, we just go back to the fucking power of words. Yes. And... Well, like, you I know, words, it's it's a writer know? it's a writer jerking himself off, man. Like that's uh, at the end of the day, all the shit about how powerful speeches are on this show is just Sorkin and the other writers blowing smoke up their own ass about how important they are in in reality. <laughs> like and uh, yeah, like I I love words. I love using ridiculous words are like, great. Flowery words when when you want when you have something you want to say precisely and there's an exact word for it. Great. Perfect. Like, like a, uh, when, when he said feckless thug, I thought that was delightful, you know? <laughs> and you know, my, my wife and I can actually provide three 
we sat there on the couch while we were watching. We can get three synonyms for the word torpor that start with the same letter. <laughs> so I fucking, I love words, but it's just like all of this boils down to using it as a, as a smoke screen for actual productivity. It is right. rhetoric over substance every single time. Yep. And you know what? That's appropriate. That's the West Wing, baby. Yep. So uh, there you go. There's a line right here at the end where uh, Bartlett's talking about the new campaign people in in difference to the, his current staff. And he says, the new people, they're here to win. We want to be right. I think we can do both. And that, that, like, that just sums <sighs> it up there. Like, the... the like the, yeah. the constant in, conflict between winning and and being right and how they're two they're two separate things and that they only yeah. want to do one of them. So um, we promised to not take twenty minutes to <laughs> record the plot this time around, but we did anyway. On and the dot. there isn't there isn't too much else to talk about in this episode. But let's take a brief break um, and we'll be back with some more big words. Big words. So the most overtly political issue that comes up in this episode centers around Josh's character's conflict with the tobacco lawsuit that the government has been attempting to prosecute over the arc of the last four or five episodes. Mm -hmm. We keep dropping it in um, almost, I mean, pretty casually just to be like, hey, this is still a show about politics, guys. You know what? I'll give credit where credit is due, and I normally take the show to task every time they drop a thing. So I will give them a little credit here and say, hey, you didn't drop this stupid tobacco lawsuit. You are trying to follow up on it. Good job, show. You get a point. (laughs) Yeah. Way to go, writers. Way to serialize that. Yeah, um, good job with the arc. And so they it, it culminates in one of the flashback scenes being Bruno coming in and talking with Josh about how he has mishandled the issue because um, he, Josh, apparently, and it's very, it's it's not explicit in any way, fucking shape or form, but he's, he leaks a press release that is briefly referenced i believe in the yeah, last we episode. don't see him do it that's the problem yeah we don't see the actual action of like hey donna go get that press release and fucking leak it like we don't get to see him actually do the thing maybe that's why it didn't play so well or why it was a little more confusing that where we yeah, had to kind of go I, back and re-decipher what had happened exactly yeah i was trying to figure i i, I literally went back and tried to pick we up where did. the thread yeah. went so what happened was he sent out what was initially referenced as like a pretty incendiary press release, like, you know, burning people Statement. and being like, hey, exactly. fucking tobacco, you know, we're going to take a very strong stance on this. And all these people are death dealers and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, like, you know, incendiary language. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so Bruno it, comes it, in. It gets them the money for their lawsuit. So at yes. first it seems like he's accomplished his only objective. But Bruno comes in to burst his bubble. Well, and they're they're having sort of a walk and talk. And 
This is cla- this is a classic credential <laughs> check, so I'll play the fucking clip here. I guess that means Doug won't be coming to my sweet 16 then. You were the one who sent him the press release, right? What press release? Subcommittee, about tobacco. Yes, I was. Well, that was stupid. You think? Yeah, I know. I got two years as legislative director in the House, two years as floor director in the Senate, and 30 months as deputy chief of staff. What do you got? Josh. Comeback's a fat-ass Rotarian gas bag. I knew once I sent the thing, he'd raise the profile and give us the press we needed. And Josh is like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at this stuff. You know, uh, this is sort of like my wheelhouse. And then Bruno sits him down in his office is like, actually, dumbass, you may have just lost us the election. Right. Because, well, and his argument is is that had Josh sat on that language or, you know, held off on being such a bulldog about it mm-hmm. they would have been able to leverage it to a certain amount of electoral success Exa- in the in the upcoming election exactly so since he kind of popped off too early as we all know voters have the memory of goldfish and by the time the election rolls around they'll be like what tobacco huh <laughs> uh, which is fairly accurate so uh, uh he kind of he shot his wad too early and and screwed up and as bruno definitely puts it you know, laying out the the Robbie Mook, Hillary Clinton playbook, Mi- Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania, baby. <laughs> you, you you just blew. We could have had all three of those had you just been patient, Josh, and listened to literally every person you pitched the idea to, telling you it was a bad idea and maybe you should wait. Well, and also like it's the conclusion that he comes to makes complete sense because like if you could have leveraged coattails in those states. To then eliminate the legislative opposition to what you want, guess what? Then you get then you shit get done. <laughs> shit done anyway. Like, which, it's it's just a different way. Which is even more way. popular, which will then, if not ensure your re-election because of term limits, at least the Democratic Party will be able to point at all of this good stuff and be like, look what we did for voters. And good so we things. can acknowledge we can acknowledge that Bruno, in this particular oh, man, regard, uh, is I just, you I do want to point out uh, real quick that uh, at one point earlier, Doug calls them all arrogant. And, and that nails it perfectly, because this is Josh at his most arrogant, where he just thought, like, no, I know better than literally everyone telling me this is a bad idea, because I'm smart, because I have the air horn, air horn credential check. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so you the, the, the subtler side of this comes through because there is a, a brief point in the episode where Josh um, confuses which issue he's talking about because also in the background of this time frame has been playing out um, a debate over the FDA's approval of RU486, the chemical abortifacient, and, if and you more, will. And more specifically, the timing of the announcement and how it's going to steal thunder from the Bartlett campaign announcement because it's going to happen on the same fucking day. So Josh has the idea that he knows the head of the FDA and he can just reach out to him, cash in a favor, and say, hey, just delay that by like a couple of weeks. But this is, of course, like a big, gigantic fucking no-no, apparently, in terms of decorum. Uh, <laughs> yeah, in so, terms of the institution. Right. The FDA uh, is independent of uh, any administration. Heaven, heaven forbid any, any politicking actually happen in this show about politics because it would break norms or what have well, you. Uh, but I think it's also set up to be like, this is Josh lashing out for a desperation sort of Hail Mary 
to kind of make up for the fact that he screwed up tobacco, which is why he keeps conflating the two when he keeps trying to, to describe the issue. Well, and the, this is a, like a, like a ideological and sort of, I don't even know if it's intentional, He's, but my, my read on it is that the writers here, it's, it's sort of indicative of the, the juxtaposition of the two issues almost and especially in Josh's hands draws a comparison that is very deliberate of smoking as a bad habit with women's issues and control of fertility with the same and my like and this is very just kind of galaxy braining it out there but putting the two of them next to each other um makes an implicit correlation between them where it's like oh you know it's just it's just like smoking like it's just like pregnancy is just a bad habit you know why can't you just get over it especially and i think this is what really tips the hand is that it is a chemical it, it's tied together in that it is either addictive they're both bad they, chemicals they're, they're both bad chemicals right. and and technically they are within like a pharmaceutical um like realm here and huh. so the, the two of them together makes a little bit of an implicit suggestion that it's like, oh, well, you know, the, these bad habits, see, you just got to, you know, got to curb them. Or, and it's just, hmm. I, I, I'm struggling to articulate it at this I, point, but the two of them together was an interesting choice to put into one character's arc. Yeah. Um, I think, I think to me, it felt like he was more focused about the fact that, it, that the, now they're going to write about the process story instead of the issue story and stuff like that. I feel like RU46 could have been literally anything and it was just the timing of it more than anything. So I didn't see that link as much as you did. I'm not denying it's there. Uh, It just personally didn't play through for me. Well, and yeah, I I think you're absolutely like the relevance and timing of it is right. is fine. And it is, it is very 2002. Like this is, or I guess 2001, but like this is, this is stuff that was in the public consciousness at the time. Jo- so the- Josh does bring up the whole, you know, pro-life thing and like they do get into it a little. So yeah, you're not, you're not entirely off base, obviously. Uh, but I think for the most part, he seems more concerned with just kind of the idea that like all his screw ups are going to kill the campaign and less about like the ideological uh, issues going on. Yeah. I just think, I just thought it was a, it's a, it's a convenient sort of very like moderate liberal perspective on a couple things to have both of those things out there where it's like, well, you know, this isn't about women being say, it's just there's a moral element to it that isn't articulated, but is suggested throughout. Hmm. Okay. So let's, let's take another quick break uh, and then we'll come back for uh, another brief segment and then we'll wrap up probably. No matter how hard I 
Okay, welcome back. Um, well, we're about to wrap up here. Before we do, I want to mention one thing, which is, so Abby and the president have been having some conflict throughout all of this because, you know, as we mentioned earlier, there's sort of the Catholic guilt thing, this whole conversation that's looming over them that they truly haven't actually gotten to sit down and have about how he betrayed her, the one-term plan, the deal kind of that they had struck, etc., etc. Uh, so there's this conflict going on between them, and CJ is doing her best to try to at least manage the press reaction of the conflict like they're concerned that Bartlett showed up on the plane without his wife and that they haven't had like a photo op together these sorts of things um and so they're kind of navigating around that throughout the episode and so at one point CJ goes to Leo and is like hey what you know can you talk to him about him and Abby and Leo's like no 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 we do we don't do that we don't we don't we don't talk about our marriages and uh, and I'm like excuse me our marriages Leo uh single divorced <laughs> yeah. Leo I I don't think you have a you know maybe that's the problem there buddy like you, <laughs> you don't know, really have a leg to stand on here yeah yeah, so this whole idea of like no no no, we're we're both too manly and uh and we can't talk about things like our marriage to a woman uh is just like some classic Leo well, I think, toxic masculinity. Yeah, I think it's, I it's chauvinism really call it. again. Like, yeah, yeah, like it's it it's that this is not a thing that men do. <laughs> well, like I mentioned it earlier, but I really think that that comes out of this episode a lot. It is, it is a, there is chauvinism, I think I wrote it in the, chauvinism for days in this episode. Yeah. All, all around, and from a lot of people, it, yeah. And especially, like, it is almost, um... I think Sorkin mistakes chauvinism for confidence. I would, I would 100% I th- agree with that. It is... I think that's, I think that's his problem. I think he sees, I think he sees acting as a chauvinistic male as the ultimate expression of confidence. Well, and... You you get moments where he tries to, or I guess he, the writers try to step outside of it, where you do have stronger, stronger female characters like Joey Lucas oh, and Connie Brighton. Uh, but like, he kind of he d- he does the trick that like if you just take a female character and write them as a man, then they become a quote unquote strong female character. Exactly. Like I feel like that's all Sorkin does is he just he effectively makes everyone gender neutral, although occasionally they they get attracted to each other. <laughs> you know, like I love that. Like <laughs> so, but we get and you get uh, there is. The, the the Connie Brighton character Connie is almost like an afterthought because it could be anybody. It could be right. anybody she, standing there. And and there's not the thing I notice is is sort of like they are quote unquote strong female characters in that the you know, they are capable, they are productive, they're good they're equally as good as their male counterparts at what have you. You know, so that part of it is the good is good, you know, in terms of writing a quote unquote strong female mm-hmm. character. The part that Sorkin misses is letting them still have their femininity while being a strong female character. Like the very rarely are they allowed to be vulnerable in like a good way or not even vulnerable, I guess, you know, everyone's, everyone's so uber competent that no one has weaknesses. So they're, they're shallow characters all, all across the board. Well, I think more, yeah, I think shallow is a good way to describe it because more than anything, it's that it is, it's obvious. It's too obvious what he's doing. There is no, there is no nuance about 
allowing for a more fluid right, like, interpretation of those of the like, other gender roles, I guess. For example, like when Ainsley comes in, we know that she's a tough cookie because all the characters call her a tough cookie. Yes. Like that that's the lack of subtlety going on. Yeah. It's a lot of telling not showing. Yes, I think that's a good articulation of it. And that's that's almost I mean, uh, let, let's be honest, 20 years ago, fine, but like that's almost worse nowadays, where it's just like, oh, we're going to be that explicit about it and right. not allow for any, like, you know, you said it, like you're telling the, the audience instead of allowing them to infer. Right. You know, it's 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 one thing if we just, you know, for going back to the Ainsley example, we see her demolish Sam and that's good. That's showing, not telling. But then we have a bunch of characters talk about how Sam got beat up by this girl to, to <laughs> yeah. prove to everyone that Ainsley has cred. We're, we're just going to have all the characters talk her up a bunch, uh, even though she's off screen. Well, and everyone should be asking, where's Ainsley? <laughs> <Yeah>. Well, <laughs> and to go, to go back to Abby here, like, she does an extremely good, like, she has one of the more fleshed out personalities in the show. Yes. And she has a great interaction with him in the very beginning when he blows into the bedroom and is like, oh, I didn't see you there. Where she just does a classic, like, power move, sort of like freeze out thing in in this way. And then it's just like, uh, Abby's going to kind of just take a backseat for the rest of the time. Right. Which is disappointing. Yeah. Like I think we'll get to her and them having this fight eventually. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty. I'm almost positive we do. This is not something that the show actually will forget about. So again, credit where credit is due. Uh, but I think that pretty much wraps up our discussion of this episode of The West Wing. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The, the Worst, Worst Wing. Wing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we will be back uh, next week with cover for me here. Um, yeah, I'm so we're, <laughs> we're still in active solicitation of guest stars. If you have any interest whatsoever in this show, have a microphone and want to join us, it's really not technically too difficult. We just want to do some prep work with you. So please come and guest star if you have a favorite episode from here on out. The two people, my two friends, who have contacted with me with interest in that regard, their favorite episodes are like three fucking seasons away. <laughs> so it's like, right. we'll wait on it, I guess. But I get if it. you have um, any inclination to join us, please do. Yes. Uh, our next episode will be entitled Ways and Means, uh, which is... Uh, about a special prosecutor begins investigating the whole MS scandal... Um, elsewhere, a forest fire rages in Wyoming, and the president is in a political bind as he decides whether or not to veto the repeal of the estate tax, or otherwise known as the death tax. Uh, and meanwhile, Donna dates a Republican. Ooh, do we get to meet Cliff Cali? Spoilers. <laughs> uh, no. Oh, okay, this okay. Is, wait, wait. Yes, nice. it is Cliff Cali. Nice. Yes, this is the first appearance of Cliff oh, Cali. Good okay, job. outstanding. Yes. Uh, who is uh, played very charmingly by uh, Mark uh, Feuerstein, yep. um, who also, uh, you might know from Royal Pains uh, with his USA, those, all those USA <laughs> psych ripoff shows that they just started fucking churning out once psych was a hit. That's right. So anyway, um, <laughs> we will catch you all next week. I hope everyone in the United States who's listening to us has... A happy distraction from International Labor Day. It's coming up this weekend. Um, solidarity <laughs> from here in New York City. And may your month of September be full of direct action 
and fucking up capitalism. Amen. And we'll catch y'all next time. Bye-bye. send all the money you ask for, but don't ask me to come on along.